I've been doing a lot of different studies over the last few weeks on different topics, and I, I write down the name of topics, and, and, and I think, oh, I'll go with that one, and that one has a catchy title, and I'll go with that one, and then uh, they kind of they don't, they, don't, uh, they don't complete themselves, and I think to myself, okay, well, I'll get back to those when the time is right, and God always gives us something to speak about when we turn to him and say, Lord, just, just give me something that might affect my brethren's hearts. So uh, today I wanted to talk about something that, that affected my heart. Before I get started, though, um, I wanted to remind myself and, and you as well, what I'm trying to do up here is, is I'm trying to inspire you. I'm trying to inspire you to loosen your grip on the world and the worldly pursuits of this life. I'm trying to inspire you to deny your flesh to put aside the things that would stumble us, to put aside the things that would take us away from our service to God, that would distract us and capture us. And I'm trying to inspire you to avoid sin and keep yourself pure. Because these are the things that we're called to do as Christians. As we look around at this world that we're engrossed in, and the media is always trying to tell us to do something, and somebody's always offering us something new, we're trying to push away those things that would take us away from the purpose that we have as Christians, what we're called to do. We are trying to be more useful tools to God. And through being more useful tools, we can become partakers of that ultimate joy of being used by God. I know that uh, during the morning class, we had a lot of different thoughts going on, and Cal was teaching, and he was teaching about um, King Saul. And he asked, does God raise up people? Does God, like he raised up a king? Yes, God still raises up people. He raises us up in baptism, as was reminded, to become kings and priests, to have a mission to go out and to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ to the world. He has raised each and every one of you for that very mission. Kings and priests is what he calls us. So as I, as I speak today, I wanted to remind you that this life that we live, it's a miracle. Every day that we get is a miracle. Every day that we move forward with a new understanding, it's a miracle. As we look forward to life and the things that we're going to do and the things that we're going to be called to do, those are going to be miracles as well. I wanted to, um, to thank you all for just for the help and support you've given to me and my family. As we've been here for the last uh, three or four years, I'm not sure how long it's been. It seems like a short time. We're getting ready to move in just a few weeks to Austin, Texas. Uh, I got accepted to go to a Bible and preaching school down there. And as I stand here today, it's, it's not a comfortable feeling. I'm not sure how other men do it and look so comfortable up here. But to me, I, I sometimes I feel like I'm holding on to this pulpit so I don't fall over. And then I have to remember to move your knees. Don't lock your knees because you might pass out. And so if you see me doing this, these are all the things that are going on inside my head. So I'm hoping that as I go to this preaching school that um, what it can do for me is I know it's going to do the work that it's supposed to do if I apply myself. But what I wanted to do is to build external structures in my head that I can reach into and grab hold of in moments like this so that I can share things with you. I'm reading a book right now 
It's called How to Take Better Notes, and he talks about all the notes that you take, and you write those things down, and you put them into a little box, and then what you do is you're able to reach out and you grab those things in your mind and share those. I look at some men that are able to give sermons or talk, and uh, they can do it for 45 minutes with no notes at all, but that's not me. But those notes are inside their head. I just wanted to go over a quick, quick timeline of what's happened so far this year, just to get started, because it's a, it's a miracle to me. It's unbelievable. I, I, just, a, just a few, just six months ago, we had just moved into a new house, and I had no idea what the future was going to open up for me. On uh, January 2nd, Mike Duffield asked if I was willing to preach in Corvallis, and the first thought I had was, I don't know if I can. I'm a little nervous. That's a congregation that I don't know. And my mouth just said yes. And then on January 5th, um, I talked with Eric Brock, Brock up there about preaching. And then February 20th, I preached in Corvallis, and there happened to be a man named Thomas Wood that was there. He invited me down to Ashland to preach, which I'm returning to next Sunday, so I won't be here to preach down there. I've never preached so much in my life until I found out that I was going to preaching school, and everybody says, oh, you're going to preaching school? Why don't you just start preaching? <laughs> what about after preaching school? On April 19th, um, while I was down there in Ashland, I was invited to check into a preaching school, and I did. And then a month later, I went down and visited. And then May 1st, I was back preaching in Corvallis. And now we're leaving the 13th of July to move down to Texas. And that's, of course, my 15th wedding anniversary with my wife. So it's going to be a, a special weekend. First, it's her birthday, and then we're moving, and then it's our anniversary, and then it's my daughter Elizabeth's birthday, all within a matter of three days. So it'll be a busy time. Um, so living life like it's a miracle, and believing that amazing things are coming your way. Because what we imagine, I, I, watched, uh, I watched YouTube sermons from different men, and uh, sometimes I, I, I click on certain things, and I say, well, who's this person, and what are they talking about? And sometimes I see sermons that are sermons of wisdom, sermons about the Bible, sermons about uh, all the things concerning Christianity. And sometimes I listen to talks that are just purely motivational speaking, that they're using the words of the Bible, but it's, it's not fluff. I don't want to use those words because maybe that's what they're trained to do, and that's how they're trained to talk. But it's, it's, um, it's great words that just kind of give you a, a pickup real quick. And... When I say live life like a miracle, I really mean live life like it's a miracle because you don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. It doesn't matter what age we are. I'm 46 years old and I'm going to be a student, and to me it's, it's a brand new beginning. I feel like a kid. I feel like I'm going to be a freshman somewhere. And so age doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how old we are. God can still start us new in another work in another place with another direction and a mission that he wants us to accomplish I'm reminded of the scripture in Romans 8:28, all things work for good to those who love God, to the, those who are called according to his purpose. So yesterday I got on my bicycle and I, I rode downtown to the Saturday market because, again, as I said last time I was preaching, I need those times to be alone, to find the voice of God sitting at my computer at my desk. It doesn't work very well. And I rode down to the Saturday market just to ride along the bicycle trail and in the rain and 
to look at the river and to think of those things. And I like to people watch. But sometimes when you go places, people watching makes you sad. And the Saturday market used to be, years ago to me, it was an exciting place where like all this new stuff and all these cool things. But now when I go down there and I sit and I people watch, I get a sadness in my heart because I see a lot of lost sheep. I see a lot of people that I, I see, I don't, even want to, I don't even want to mention what I see. And I'm sure you can think of the same things where you see things that it's like, that's not right, or that poor person. And it's not a scoffing in the heart where you look at somebody and say, I'm better than that person. Like, look at the loss they are. Look at what they're doing. Don't they understand? Those thoughts aren't there. Those thoughts of like, I wish I could bring something to that person that could save their life. I wish I could bring something to them that could take them out of their misery or take them out of their lostness or take them out of their confusion. And I wish I could give them something so that they could stand up straight and not look so beaten down or not look so confused or not look so lost. It, it's like looking at lost sheep. When I was down there, I ran into a man that I used to know um, maybe seven years ago. And uh, he used to dress real nice and look real good. And he always had a hat that was, had some sort of cool bling on it, you know, and he dressed real nice. And, and uh, I think he referred to himself as a pretty boy because he was a, a good-looking guy and he always dressed nice and he was really all about, you know, looking good. But when I ran into him yesterday, and I hadn't seen him for years, he, he didn't look so good. And our eyes met, and he's like, hey, juggler. And I was like, hey, what's going on? And so I went over, and, and I talked to him. And as I got to talk to him a little bit, <clears throat> it was difficult for me because his face was covered in tattoos. They were coming up his throat. His eyes were shifty. His body movements were different. He wasn't the man that I used to know. He seemed to be like... It, Maybe the expression is a shell of himself. He was, before, he was pretty, he was confident, he was courageous, but now he had shaky speech, his eyes were shifty and unsure, he looked lost, and he was laughing too loud about everything as if like searching for people to laugh with him. And I could see he was different, and he was telling me how he lives in a trailer now, behind some business down in the wit, he doesn't have a job, and he just makes little bits of art to sell at the Saturday market. My heart went out to him. A few, a few weeks ago, I saw another friend of mine who was, uh, that I knew probably about seven years ago, and it was the same story. And he told me about the troubles in his life, going through hard times, and I know he's been going through hard times for years, and it's self-inflicted hard times. And my heart went out to him too, and all I could do was hug him and talk to him because I've talked to him about things of the gospel before, but it was always, uh, I don't want none of that. So it breaks our hearts when we see those things. We wish we could reach out and we could cure their pains. We wish we could get them to learn how to empty and to clear his conscience. But not the way that man does it. Because what does man do when, our consci- when, when, when we were younger, before we were Christians, what did we do when our conscience was bothered? We went and found some drink. Or we went and found some drugs. Or we went to a party. Or we went and mingled with all these things that we're not supposed to do so that we could cover the conscience that screams out at us and says, you shouldn't be doing this. This isn't the life that you live. There's something more to this. Today I wanted to talk about a man who had his conscience shaken by Jesus. And he listened to it. And he became a person that we all admire for the work that he did, the words that he wrote, and the man that he became. That he became. You know, um, I was always taught that when you're preaching that this is holy ground.
So sometimes I take it a little too serious, and I try to lighten up and smile a little bit more. But these words, they're serious to my heart. Today I wanted to talk about Paul, Saul. Paul was a man who was all about the law, wasn't he? Saul. Saul was all about the law. He was, he was a Pharisee of Pharisees. I mean, this man was like super religious. He was a zealous man that stood out among zealous men. Sometimes I watch videos and you come across these little short videos and I saw this video re- recently of this, all these guys in the gym, all these bodybuilders are like lifting and they all had tank tops on and they all had big muscles and then this dude who's a power lifter walks in and this guy was a giant and they all turned to look at him and as he walked through and he was the man, everybody's like, all these giant men that we would think are giant are looking at this giant man going, that's a giant man. And I think that's how, that must have been how the other Pharisees looked at Paul. Like, that guy's zealous. Like, he's serious about the law. He was raised at the feet of Gamaliel. Everybody knew him and could testify, testify about how fervent he was in his belief. In Acts 26 and verse 5, he says of himself that he was after the straightest sect of his religion. He lived a Pharisee. In Acts 26 and verse 9, Paul is describing the type of man that he used to be before his conversion. He said, I thought to myself that I ought to do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth, which things I also did in Jerusalem. And many of the saints I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priests. And when they were put to death, I gave my voice against them, and I punished them often in every synagogue, and compelled them to blaspheme. And being exceedingly mad against them, I persecuted them, even unto the strange cities. He didn't just look at the Christians that were in Jerusalem and the synagogues that were trying to convince other Jews or the cities that were surrounding Jerusalem, but he went out far into strange cities to seek out and find those that profess Jesus. I don't know if you guys have watched the new show, Obi-Wan Kenobi. It's not so good. Um, it's kind of B-rated. But to make a point, there's these people that they go throughout the whole galaxy to find Jedis. And they hunt them from planet to planet to find them and kill them. I thought, this is, this is what Paul did. He went out of his way in his religious mindset to hunt those that didn't believe like he believed so that he could kill them and put them in prison. This was the same man that stood and watched as the martyr Stephen was stoned to death and gave his consent. This man hunted Christians because he thought that that's what the law told him to do. See, this man, he found his righteousness in himself. He thought to himself, I have followed the law. He looked in the mirror, and he told himself that he was a judge of the law, and that it was his responsibility to exercise judgment on those who were disobedient to the law. Does that sound like anybody that you know personally? I know I can think of people, maybe from my youth, who think, oh, this is the law, and it's for me to exercise this judgment on them. It's funny, my kid Sam, he's he's a little bit like that, not such in a bad way, but we'll be driving down the road and somebody will cut us off and he'll yell, look at that guy did, somebody should call the police. It's like, well, let it go, dude. It's not a big deal. But he's always like, they did something wrong. I know they did something wrong, oldest brother. It's okay. Everybody does things wrong. Stop. That lawyer mindset where we think, I, I am following the law. How come they're not following the law? 
I'm following the law to the best of my ability, and that gives me the title to be the judge of other people and to go chase them down and let them know you're not following the law. I was raised in a, in a congregation like that where there became sin watching, where people would look after other people and say, hmm, I'm not sure what I saw, but maybe it was this, and I think you should look at it. And everybody, instead of looking at themselves, was looking at everybody else. And this had to be what Paul was like. Instead of looking at himself, he was looking at everybody else, thinking, this is what you should be like, and I'm here to exercise that judgment. Do you know anyone who considers it their responsibility to exercise judgment on those who are disobedient to the law? We all do. But we have to look in the mirror and see that inside ourselves too. Do we find that spirit within inside ourselves? Maybe we don't act on that feeling, but it still remains inside, doesn't it? Affecting our relationship with others. I call it, me and my brother, Ben, we would call it uh, Judgy Judgerton. Oh, Mr. Judgy Judgerton. It's dumb. I'm just going to judge you. I'm just going to tell you. That I'm going to look at everything that you say. I'm going to question it. I'm like, it's a heart that's inside of all of us. It's a self-righteousness. We can become self-righteous because we think that we're following the law better than other people are following the law. Saul was a lawman personified. Do you guys remember that movie Judge Dredd? Arnold, or uh, Sylvester Stallone. He had a sidearm, this little gun next to him that could shoot everything, and it was called the lawgiver. And he would walk around, I remember him walking around, he would walk around with his arms all big and be like, I am the law. And then uh, he, he busted this one guy, Rob Schneider, that had just got out of jail, and the guy was trying to hide from a gang, so he's hiding inside a robot, and then Judge Dredd sees him crawling out of the robot after hiding for his life, and he judges him again, and he says, oh, look, you broke the law, you're going back to jail. No understanding, just judgment. I'm going to pass this judgment on you because I have no love. Because I have no understanding, I'm just going to pass this law on you. Judge Dredd was one of the most celebrated street judges. He was respected by his peers, renowned by the public, and feared by the criminals. He was judge, jury, and executioner. It always makes me think of Saul. I am the law. I'm going to run around and judge people. Saul was a hard man that did horrible things in the name of the law. So we have this character of Saul, and it's sometimes hard to look at because we know him as Paul. And we know all the beautiful things that he's written that have touched all of our hearts. So how did this man go from, I am the law, I'm going to exercise my judgment on you, to 1 Corinthians 13? How did he make that switch from, I know the way, to without love, anything you do is empty? It's a leap, isn't it? We know where that transformation took place. It took place when Jesus appeared to him on the road to Damascus. In Acts 9 and verse 1, I'm going to read through it. And it says, just to scoop, scoop back to 7 real quick, and it's talking about Stephen, just go over that. And it says, then they stoned Stephen, calling upon God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then there was Saul, holding the coat to those. And then in chapter 9 it says, And Saul, 
Yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord, went unto the high priest and desired of him letters to Damascus, to the synagogues, that if he found any of this way, whether they were men or women, he would bring them bound unto Jerusalem. And as he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly there shined round him a light from heaven. And he fell to the earth and heard a voice saying unto him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And he said, Who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. It is hard for you to kick against the pricks. And he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? And the Lord said unto him, Arise and go into the city, and it shall be told you what you have to do. And the men which journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no man. And Saul arose from the earth, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no man. But they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And he was three days without sight and didn't eat and didn't drink. Here was the man of the law, breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord. He, it says that he desired letters from the high priest. It wasn't something that, somebody didn't come to him and say, hey, I need you to do this task. I know it's going to be really hard to do, but you've got to do it. No, this man desired the letters. He, he wanted to do this. He desired letters from the high priest, giving him permission, giving him power to persecute others that he didn't think was following the law. Here was a man that was confident in his own righteousness, marching about to exercise his own judgment on other people. Think, Judge Dredd, I am the law. Look at me. He says, as touching righteousness, which is the law, when he was mocking himself, I am blameless. I am the law. But what was he really? He was rebellious against the gospel. He was puffed up with confidence. He was hating the true faith, blinded by hypocrisy. And then Christ gets a hold of him and breaks his spirit. Christ took a wolf and turned him into a sheep. When the Lord took his sight and stopped him in his tracks, that was up to that point the best day of Saul's life. It was the best day of his life because he was about to be changed for the better. Mercy rejoiced over judgment. Paul was shown mercy instead of punishment. God didn't do to him what he was doing to others. Christ knew that his mercy towards Saul would work a far greater good than any punishment ever could. Paul realized this and later wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy in chapter 1 and verse 15. He says, This is a trustworthy saying worthy of all acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. But for this reason I was shown mercy, so that in me, the worst of all sinners, Christ Jesus might display his perfect patience as an example to those who would believe in him for eternal life. When Jesus got a hold of us and he bruised our spirits, just enough to cause us to repent, it was up to that point the best days of our life, wasn't it? Do we forget that what Jesus did for us? I know we don't forget. We come here every Sunday so that we can remember. But this world, it takes it out of us, doesn't it? This world with all the things that we have to do to survive and the news that come down the pipeline and the children that are under our care and the things that happen at the school that make us angry, that we hear about, teaching them things that they shouldn't teach them. And we go on whole conversations on that, whole thought processes on that. And we forget what was done for us, not because we don't want to remember, because we're thinking of other things. Do we, remember, do we remember the nature of the gospel? I wanted to go over that quickly, just quickly. 
Jesus perfectly obeyed the law of God. His act of righteousness stands in the place where our act of rebellion toward God exists. Jesus has absolutely satisfied the justice of God. Jesus has eliminated the wrath of God from us. He has removed our sins from the presence of God. He has redeemed us from the curses of God. He has reconciled and reunited us to God. He has opened the door to us being the children of God. And it's because of all of that that you and I may rest and be secure in Christ. How is that not good news? You know, that talks about rest in the Bible, and it talks about here we are in a rest, and we talked about rest in the, the morning class, how it was a place of peace where we could just be. Knowing that we are in Christ, close to God, our sins are separated from us, that he's reconciled us, that gives us rest. There are two things needed for salvation. Knowing that I am a sinner, and I'm weak, and knowing that Jesus is an incredible Savior. You and I, we are judged righteous because we are in Christ. Our Savior saves us from hell, saves us from our weaknesses, and saves us when we go astray. Do you remember the moment that you were convicted of your sin and your need for a Savior? I remember. I was in Alaska, and my mom was teaching me the Bible. And I had been taught the Bible my whole life. I grew up in the church. But it didn't really impact my heart. I mean, I could tell you Bible classes, and I could tell you about Jesus, and I could tell you about Paul, and I could tell you about Peter and John, and I could tell you about Acts. And my teachers taught me those things, just like you teachers teach the kids here. But it didn't sink down into my heart. It never affected me the way that it was supposed to affect me because, for one, I was young and I didn't understand, and then later on, I rejected it. I pushed it away. Instead of following the gospel, I, I put the gospel on people's faces and said, if that's the gospel, I don't want to be like that, instead of seeing, for, seeing it for what it really was. And then I was in Alaska, and uh, uh, I had been out of the, I'd been out of my mom's home for about 10 years, and I, I had sunk down to a state where I knew that if I died, I was going to go to hell. And I knew that God wasn't listening to my prayers. And I knew that I was not a child of God and that I, my sins hadn't been washed away. And my mom was showing me all these things through the scriptures and I, I remember just feeling like scared, just horrified, terrified that if I die now, do I know where I'm going? I don't know where I'm going. I have a feeling I know where I'm going and that's not where I wanted to go. And I remember as she showed me through the scriptures and she showed me baptism, she taught me salvation and she taught me about Jesus again and how it affected my heart and how small and humble I felt. And I remember I started going to church because I just wanted to listen. I just wanted to hear the things again, the things that I was raised with, but now they were affecting me. They weren't just a community I was part of, but they were something that was going to reach out and that was going to save me from who I was and from the destination I knew what was in front of me. And I remember I felt so small and I didn't want to I didn't want to argue with anybody. I just wanted to receive. I didn't feel big enough to have an opinion. I just wanted to be there and I just wanted to hear. Do you remember when you were young in Christianity and you drank every scripture that was read to you? Do you remember what it was like to be little in your own eyes? We forget that sometimes, don't we? We forget what was done for us. We grow too big for our britches, as my dad used to say. Too big for your britches. 
And it's easy for our fleshy mind to think that we're something special because we're in this life. We're in this body. We're doing this. We're physical, fleshy people. That's what we are. But inside of us is a spirit that has to be fed. We can look at our lives and we can think to ourselves, I've got things together. I'm making the right decisions. I've got my house paid off. My credit score, none of these apply to me. I don't have a house. (laughs) These are things that I think some of these apply to me. Many of these things apply to me, but not a house. My credit, my, my credit score is pretty decent. If you were going to introduce yourself to somebody and they said, what kind of person are you? And I'm like, well, I got like a 780 credit score. Oh, that just tells me all about you right there. We can feel that about ourselves, right? All these little things I do, I know they're mistakes, but my pre, my, I pay my bills, so I'm a good person. My, my kids are turning out okay. They're not like those other kids. My job's going well. I'm successful. I'm a leader. I'm an example. I know how to dress myself. I know how to behave when people are around. I know how to make a good investment. My yard's looking pretty good. My garden is doing much better than your garden. And I'm reminded of this this post I saw on Facebook the other day. (laughs) It was great. He posted, if you think my, I forgot how it went. If you think my, social media posts are bad. You should see my life decisions. (laughs) It was hilarious, and I thought, yeah, yeah, that's me sometimes, you know? But we can can think that we're better, and we can think uh, that I'm a good Christian, and that I am a judge of the law, because, I mean, I can wear a suit and tie, and look what I've turned out to be. Look at at the friends that I used to have, and look at them now, and they're suffering, and, and look at me. Right? I've applied the law. I'm successful. Listen to me. I'm going to tell you because this, you need to hear this. And we can become like Saul. We can become judges of the law. We all have those thoughts, don't we? And God knows it. And he's patient enough to humble us in those things that we think we're good in so that we can become better. This is his promise of our sanctification. It's our pruning. This is our perfecting. God first brings us to repentance and then he brings us to perfection. God first brings us to repentance and then he brings us to perfection. We have to be willing to be brought to repentance. We can't kick against the pricks of our conscience. When something inside of our heart tells us you shouldn't be doing that, you shouldn't be going there, you shouldn't be associated with that, We can do one or two things. We can push it and deny it and excuse it. Or we can say, I'm going to go with that. Because he says, whatever is not of faith is sin. If it bothers us, we shouldn't be doing it. There's no reason to fight against the pricks of our conscience. God humbles the pride in our heart, and then we become willing to obey and follow. When we wander and go astray, he is kind and he is patient and he is loving enough to come bring us back and then teach us again. Will we ever be perfect? No. But we will be brought closer to it. As we continue to repent of the things that separate us from our God and from our brethren, we become more and more perfect. But do we always listen? We don't. We still, we kick against those pricks. They reach out and they touch us. And we fight against them. 
I heard a man say, the root of most mental illnesses or the root of many mental illnesses are from an overloaded conscience, are from a conscience that have just been ignored and pushed down and suppressed too many times. I look at that, um, that definition where he says, and I'll begin to wrap this up. When he, when he told, when Jesus told Saul, he said, it's hard to kick against those pricks, isn't it? When a farmer hooked up an oxen to yoke, there was an ox goad that was on that yoke. There was a sharp piece of iron stuck into the end of a stick with which the ox was urged on. So if he slowed down, it poked him. Hey, go a little faster. Don't do that. If he went the wrong way, poked him. Hey, don't go that way. The expression to kick against the prick or the goad is derived from the action of a stubborn and unyielding ox kicking against the goad. And the more he kicked against it, the harder it hurt him. If he didn't kick against it, it wouldn't hurt so bad. But the more he fought it, the more it hurt him. When Christ says, take my yoke upon you and learn of me, my yoke is easy and my burden is light, why do we resist it in some areas? Why do we fight against the areas that we know we shouldn't? Why do we choose to keep things in our life that we know are sinful? They only hurt us daily. They steal our joy. They cause us sorrow. They ruin our peace of mind, and they muddle our understanding. If we continue to kick against those pricks, we'll only hurt ourselves because of it. I was talking with, my, with Elizabeth and with Samuel this morning, and he said, I, I talked to my teacher at school, and I talked to her about the con science. And I said, uh, she said, there is no con science. And I said, no, the word is conscience. So he went and grabbed a book and brought it back, and I said conscience on it. He says, it says conscience. <laughs> so I took him to Google, and I put in the word, and I hit, and it says conscience. And he's like, oh. So then I asked Elizabeth, do you know what a conscience is? And she said, I, I don't know what a conscience is. And so I taught her about the conscience. And I looked in Romans in, in chapter 2 and verse 15. It says the law is written on all man's hearts, that our conscience bears witness, and it either accuses or excuses us. I've had friends tell me, um, I don't know if I would want to go to church because it would bother me about the things that I do. Well, don't worry about going to church because the conscience is within all of us. It's going to tell us what we should do and what we shouldn't do. Coming here only exercises it the way we need to. You know, in, in telling this story about the two friends that I ran into, I wanted to share a third one. Um, a friend of mine who I've been friends with since about 2013, um, he's a juggler, and uh, he's I would call him a little hippie kid, but uh, he's in his mid-20s now, but he's got dreadlocks, and they look great, you know. I mean, it's a different culture. I wouldn't wear them, but they got dreadlocks, and his, his girlfriend, um, she's got green hair, and they're, they're, total, um, they're total Eugene people, um, and I ran into him uh, the other day, and I hadn't seen him for a while, and it was so good to see him. And there was no, we're just, we're old friends. There's nothing between us. And we talked about forgiveness, and we talked about growing the juggling community, and, and I, you know, and he was excited about me going to preaching school, and he's like, it just blows my mind. And I'm like, I know, me too. And, and he goes, um, he's been here once before for the juggling club, and he says, what does the church think about people like me? He goes, is, are we allowed to go? 
And I told him, of course you are. Like, we're not here to judge any. Come on. You know, like, you're more than welcome to show up to this place because we're not going to judge you on these things. We want you to come in. But, and I could tell, he says, I, I pray to God. He goes, I don't know what God I pray to. He goes, but I, I know that there's more to this life than just this. And I know that we're meant for something different. I just don't know what it is. And this guy's heart is soft, and I know I'm going to be able to work with him. So some regress into confusion, and some still keep their heart right and try to do the right thing. We talked about forgiveness and other things. But I was thinking as I wrap this up that you and I, we're the fortunate ones. We know how to keep it clean and clear our conscience. We go back to the Bible, we pray to our God, and our conscience says, don't do those things. And we know that we've been saved and that Jesus has given us his blood. We're part of the family of God. And that when we sin, we can have those sins cleared off of our conscience. We can be fresh and new every morning. I think of the scripture that says that his mercies are renewed every morning our consciences can be renewed every morning too. We are the fortunate ones. There's an old saying that says, there is no pillow as soft as a clear conscience. This is how we enter into that rest with God. We have a clear conscience. We're fortunate to have each other. As I leave and get ready to move to Texas, there's so many words that I, I don't know how to say. I would have to write them down and then edit them. But you guys are foundational to me. You guys give me courage to do the things that I've done in the last four years. Running my business, raising my kids. Because I know the mistakes that I make, and I make a lot of mistakes. I can come back here and I can learn because this is the house of wisdom. If I go hang out with uh, my old friends and I go hang out and juggle at the park and talk about life and silliness and raves and all these things that, that those kids like to talk about, there's no wisdom in that. But when I come here, I hear wisdom, wisdom for life. And this is something that you and I are fortunate to have. We can't hear those things when we kick against the pricks. Because when we shut down our conscience, we take away our understanding. When unbelief sets in, understanding goes out the door. We're fortunate to be here, to have a hope of heaven, to be reminded by each other to strive for righteousness, to be reinforced by the abundance of wisdom and understanding in this room, to be blessed by so many good examples, to have mercy, to have patience with each other, to have hope, to have faith, to have love. We can forget what we have when we just want to go our own ways. And sometimes God just has to remind us how blessed we really are by reminding us what he took us out of. Insight changes our interests. We stop wanting certain things when we understand where they can take us. So this is the health of wisdom. I am thankful for all of you in my life. I'm trying to draw a little closer as I get ready to go away. We plan to move back here in two years, but I have to say with a caveat, I don't know what God has in store for me. But I don't want to go away. It's hard for me to go away because in my heart I've drawn closer to you guys. And I feel like like I'm abandoning, you know, my friends. And I know it's not supposed to be that way, but still in my heart, it's not easy. It's not easy to just get up, pack my family, and leave and go to a whole new set of brethren. I have faith that God is taking me to this place, so I know it's going to be for my good. But still, I'm really comfortable here. I'm, 
I'm comfortable enough to stand up here and ramble for a little while. And I'm comfortable enough, you know, to draw close to you guys and talk about the things that I struggle with. And I'm comfortable enough to come here every week and know that I can wear a suit and I'm not going to get beat up for it. I'm comfortable enough to be myself here. It took me a long time. I was scared when I first came here. Every time I say that, I look at Cindy. <laughs> I was nervous. People were trying to talk to me. I don't know who you are. But now I can come here and I can, I can, I would say, hang out with you guys, but it's not like that. We come to worship. But I can come here and I not feel so stressed. I'm going to go there and be worried that, like my kids, are they going to put me to shame? You better believe I'm going to be worried. And I might be a little heavy-handed. I'm, sit still, don't move. Now I'm like, just don't run and knock over old people. They might break a hip, right? But I'm going to be worried. But I'm very comfortable here, more comfortable than I've ever been in my life. I was talking to a friend the other day, and I don't have lifelong friends. I I only have my family. Um, There's people that I knew that I grew up with, but I have no lifelong friends. I've lived in over 60 different houses in my life. And I can give you the addresses to all of them. I've written them down and counted them. I went to so many different schools. When I first moved to Eugene in 1979, my parents did. And we moved out of here in 91. In that amount of time, I went to 15 different schools. We just moved and moved and moved. So there's no lifelong friends that I have. Facebook friends are some of the oldest friends that I have. And that's not, that's, there's friends that I knew from the Marine Corps, but I'm not close to them the way I'm close to you. So it's hard for me to leave here. So I just ask you to keep, keep things tight until I get back. Because I want to come back. Because this is where my home is. I want to draw close to you guys. I want to draw a close to the sermon. The church is it's the greatest thing that we could ever be part of. It's the foundation for our souls. It's a foundation for our lives. We can just randomly swing by somebody's house and knock on the door and say, hey, how you doing? That's comfortable. That's loving. When we get those feelings in our hearts where we begin to look around and say, why aren't they like me? Or they're too liberal. Or they're too conservative. Or they need to do this. Or they need to do that. And how come? Push those things away. It ruins community. Grow close to each other. Be there for me when I get back, please. I'm going to close this with a prayer. Our Father in heaven, we come to you in prayer, Lord. We give you thanks that you watch over us, that you're kind to us and gentle to us, that you don't punish us for the things that we should be punished for, that you work with us, that you would leave the flock to go run after that little sheep who's gone astray. We know, Lord, that every single one of us is that little sheep has gone astray. And that you came after us, that you brought us back. And we know that you continue to bring us back to your presence and by your side so that we can sit in your pastures and be among family. We ask and pray, Lord, that you would just bless the elders of this church and the minister and for every one of us, Lord. We ask and pray that you would work with us Help us to strengthen our spirits. Help us to look forward to the good that we can do for each other and for the world around us. Give us strength to fight against the flesh that rises up and thinks it's something special. 
Help us to see those areas in our life where there's unbelief, where we fight against the things that we know are wrong and say, yes, we can do them. Lord, put a little more force on us. We know that when you chasten us, that you love us. Help us to become better people because we know, Lord, that as we become more perfect and more sanctified, that we are more joyful in this life. And that's what we seek, Lord, is to have our joy in you, have our joy in each other. We pray, Lord, that you help us to watch over the children that are under our control. We can be good shepherds for them, teach them to resist this world, to stay away from evil. Help us as we go out today that we can continue to remember, remember the things where you lead us. Give us foundation so we can stand strong. And this we pray in Christ's name. Amen.